You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. There has been an awakening. Have you felt it? Who are you? I'm no one. I'm no one. She is strong with the force. Untrained, but stronger than she knows. Bring her to me. has always been there. But now it's awake. And I need help. I've seen this raw strength only once before. It didn't scare me enough then. It does now. Time. Kill it. If you have to. It's the only way to become what you were meant to be. I need someone to show me my place in all this. everybody and welcome once again to GeekFest Rant. My name is Carlos Perone and today it's going to be all Star Wars The Last Jedi. I am finally getting around to reviewing the film and boy are we going to put the rants back in GeekFest Rants. This is going to be a single subject episode which is a rare thing for us. Recently we had a close to single subject episode, but this one is all my first impressions of The Last Jedi, and boy do I have many things to talk about. Like I said, this is going to be a long episode, but it is not the end of the subject. So, without any further delays, let's start with The Last Jedi. What did I teach you? You are the Duke of New York. You are a number one. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Can you dig it? 
Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That's spawn of Satan! <laughs> oh, really? The Force will be with you, always. All right, this is going to be what I think I'm going to call my first impressions of Star Wars The Last Jedi. No big mystery here that a movie like this is going to be super, super hyped up, especially for the fans. Their expectation level is so high. The early buzz on the film was very positive. And, you know, when you step into a sequel, if you will, because this is the secondary film of this particular trilogy, you have certain expectations in terms of what you would like to happen, obviously, but you also have kind of like a roadmap already established with the first one. So the normal rule is kind of like, well, if you didn't like the first one, you probably won't like the second one. Because in theory, usually these things follow a certain pattern. You establish a pattern, you establish a, a set of rules, if you will, with the first film that continues through the rest of whatever trilogy you happen to be watching. You know, they set the pace. The first film sets the pace. And I know that with the first film, The Force Awakens, there were all types of attacks on the film, if you will, some of them ridiculous, some of them stylistic, some of, you know, you, you, you just name it. I know at first, the group of people that don't like J.J. Abrams were automatically tearing the film apart because it was a J.J. film and because J.J. Abrams directed it the way he directs his films. Okay. You know, I get that in terms of saying, yeah, if you hate this director, you're not going to pretty much, you know, give too much of a shot, you know, when he puts out something new and you're going to be looking for those specific things that might pop up. So you could say, there, there it is. There you go. That's why you hate this film. Then you have people in for the first film <laughs> that had whole bunch of other personal problems with the film, more of them political, basically, the the, the fact that you have an African-American lead character, the fact that you have a woman lead character, they're the co-leads, basically. So they had their, they had those issues with them. And I always, you know, I always say to myself, and it's incredible, you know, when you have a, um, a franchise, and even if it's not a franchise, I mean, in the early days, even of Star Wars, if you do a little research, you kind of know where Lucas stands politically, let's say. But it's amazing that the film opens up to everybody and everybody, no matter what your politics, they like the film. But what's amazing is how people interpret the film, how they kind of reverse the intent of some of these characters so that they identify with them and their set of beliefs identify with these characters. So, you know, Luke Skywalker to one person might be a very, um, let's just say, politically inclining in one direction, but to another person, Luke Skywalker is the opposite of that. And again, by the time we get to The Force Awakens, with people having that much of a negative reaction because of who was cast to play the lead roles, again, it's kind of like, you know what, if that bothers you, first of all, you're not a Star Wars fan. You're not really in the spirit of what the writing is intended to be. And second of all, you really shouldn't be watching these films. <laughs> you know, stick to other directors that are more like-minded in terms of how they'd like to depict Michael Bay. Go watch Michael Bay films. Go watch Clint Eastwood films. You know, you want a modern version of somebody who, you know, will make 
the kind of films that, you know, align with your particular beliefs, then you go in that direction because you're always going to be disappointed when you're dealing with somebody who's not, you know, in your base camp, if you will. Or you have to kind of lie to yourself, like people have done many times, into kind of rewriting, let's say, the intent or the message that is with these films. But anyway, that's the past. This is the secondary film, like I mentioned, and I was able to get the tickets way ahead of time because I wasn't sure if, uh, you know, if I was going to be able to. When they first announced the, the pre-sales, it was tough because my local theaters here, the, I don't have big chain theaters like AMCs or Regals nearby. I would have to at least drive eh, about a half hour, a little, maybe about 35 minutes to be able to reach those areas where they have those theaters. But my local theaters here, they're not that bad. They're not hugely, you know, enormously, you know, corporate type of theaters, but they're very good. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you know, the, the size of the screen is usually a good size and, you know, it gets the job done. Let's put it that way. And they have a good selection of 2D and 3D films. So way, 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 way later, maybe about a month ago, I would say, is when they first started selling or pre-selling tickets for The Force Awakens. So I was able to get them in a, you know, ahead of time. So I was like calm. I was able to go see them that Thursday night, the pre-premiere date. So we went to a seven o'clock show and it's going to be kind of difficult to review this film compared to other films. And I normally don't review films and going very thick into the plot details because that could take a long time. But for this one, I'm going to have to do that. And it's really difficult to describe, to give you a very short answer of how I felt about this movie. There were parts of this movie that were fantastic, that were everything I wanted it to be and more, way more. But there were parts of this film that I was like, what am I watching here? What's going on here? This is different. This is unusual. Whatever happened to this? Whatever happened to that? Hey, who's this person? You know, there was stuff that was really uh, troublesome. (laughs) So it was kind of like a mixed bag of stuff. And I really cannot throw, you know, my 100% support behind this movie because of all these conflicting aspects of it. And it's going to be one of these things where little by little, by reading reviews, not necessarily by listening to other people's reviews, because that's going to be somebody else's opinion. And that's just whatever it is. But by reading interviews with the director, we might start to get some clarity into some of the stuff we've seen, obviously, until the next one comes out and see what direction they go with this. But I'll talk about this as we progress with the movie. So let's talk about the movie itself. The Last Jedi, you get the usual Star Wars crawl in the beginning, you know, updates you on what's been happening. Yes, the Resistance has uh, blown up, you know, Starkiller base and, and everybody's happy about that. However, the Republic or the New Republic or whatever we call ourselves these days has been decimated because the, you know, the home planet was blown up to bits by Starkiller base before they were able to, to blow it up. So the resistance itself, it's very small in terms of the numbers, the official resistance fighters, and they're on the run. They're on the run and they're being chased around and they're just constantly running apparently. <laughs> While Ray is still out there looking for Luke, uh, the resistance seems to be involved in like hit and run tactics and just getting out of bases and coming into new bases and that sort of thing. It's very similar, again, and I'm going to be saying this many, many times, it's very similar to The Empire Strikes Back. In The Empire Strikes Back, you had a situation where the rebels had accomplished a great, great, fantastic feat with the destruction of the Death Star. And you kind of felt like, hey, this is great. You know, we we did a good job. (laughs) 
you know, things are starting to turn around. But then when you get to the Empire Strikes Back, it's like, oh, the rebels are on the run. It's just, it just sucks to be a rebel. <laughs> you know, we're getting our butt kicked everywhere we go. We're, we're the starting bases and leaving bases. And it's like, okay, I, 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 get, I see a pattern here. Okay, fine. You know what? This is the middle story. If you look at how story structure goes and the traditional or the typical boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back. Okay, the rebels, uh, resistance, uh, they do something great. They meet the girl. They blow up the Death Star. And then now we're in the movie. Without, now we're watching the movie that where the uh, boy loses the girl or the, uh, the resistance gets its butt kicked. Here we are. The resistance is in the middle of an evacuation process. They're evacuating their greatest and uh, latest base. And we come right to it in the middle of it. Ships are starting to depart this planet while all of a sudden the entire, you know, fleet of the uh, New Order is arriving and they're ready to blow it to bits. And you have not only do you have the typical New Order Star Destroyers, but you also have this, I think they called it a dreadnought, which is like a gigantic triangular, very flat, very wide design for, you know, a big, big ship, the, the new ship of the month, the big baddie ship of the month type of thing. And, you know, we're inside some of these other ships and, and we see General Hux is, you know, he's screaming about, hey, going to blow them up and kill them. He is so over the top. Now, if you remember the part in um, Force Awakens where Hux is giving his speech, his Hitler speech, if you will, <laughs> his inauguration speech, you can't even recognize the actor because he is so incredibly over the top. But don't get me wrong. It is not bad over the top. It's great over the top. I don't know if this is going to be an actor that's going to have longevity, but you know, this is going to be the type of thing where people are saying, and remember when he played that role and how crazy he acted? Well, in here, he is practically constantly in that crazy mode, which is good. It's, it's, I love watching him in this crazy mode and this, you know, rage and fury and, you know, fire and brimstone type of mode. And, you know, he's, he's telling and, you know, fire on this and, you know, don't let any of them live, you know, that kind of stuff. It's great. I love it. So then we also have, you know, as the rebels are, I keep calling them rebels, as the resistance keeps escaping the planet and pulling up, you have Poe Dameron, he's flying one of his X-Wings, and uh, there's something that looks a little different about the X-Wing, because the, the Dreadnoughters are getting ready to fire down on the planet itself, but he is there, and he's by himself, and all of a sudden they realize he's coming at them, he's coming straight at them, he's attacking the big gigantic monstrosity ship, <laughs> if you will. He hits a button on the X-Wing, and all of a sudden you notice that in the back of the X-Wing, you have a center engine that we've never seen before. You know, we're used to seeing the X-Wings with four engines, you know, two on each wing. Well, now you have a center engine, like in the middle of the main body of the uh, ship. And it's funny because it, this is something that's going to be going back and forth and back and forth, and we're used to it. Uh, I believe that's from one of the earlier drawings of what an X-Wing would look like, or an earlier model. Uh, and I think it was a Colin Cantwell design uh, where you do have a fifth engine. Now, this fifth engine, it's cool because what happens is once you activate that engine, it just, the ship all of a sudden just, I don't want to say it flies, it's already flying, it goes super, super, super fast. It goes even faster than used to seeing it, to the extent where BB-8's head, who is the 
a droid that's manning the uh, the droid socket of the of the X-wing. His head kind of like tilts back because uh, the force being you know pushed on him, and he has to kind of get his head back to the front of his own body. And even Poe Dameron's helmet, all of a sudden, the visor comes down by itself because his head got jerked back that it caused the visor to fall down. Now, I don't know if that was done on purpose or that was an accident. I think it was done on purpose, but it looked really cool. And as we see this happening, Hux is losing his mind. He's just losing his mind. He's, you know, he's trying, he's calling them. He, it's funny because at one point he refers to Poe Dameron as rebel scum, which is kind of funny because it's an old, you know, it's an homage again to the original trilogy. I think it was, maybe it was Return of the Jedi where they use that term uh, when they go into the bunker. And, the way that Hux delivers his lines, let me just again go into it. One of the things that I wrote here in my notes is Spaceballs. It reminded me of, of uh, Rick Moranis' character in terms of how dramatic that, uh, you know, he is with delivering his, his Vader lines. But he is just, again, it's a joy to watch him, you know, ham it up. It's, it's the definition of hamming it up, you know, for a baddie, for a bad guy. And it's so different than the rest of the officers because, you know, the rest of the officers are typical, you know, imperial type of officers. You know, they behave a certain way. They're, you know, they have a certain demeanor, but he is just, he's got the demeanor, but he can't control himself. He goes over the top every second he can. So, as Poe is flying closer and closer, he's knocking out all of the, uh, all the, the turret guns on the ship itself. And they're having a real tough time catching up to him because he's going so fast. And as the TIE fighters who now are engaging him start to kind of shoot at him and, and damage his ship a little bit. And I could have swore, I'm not entirely sure, but I could have swore in the process they might have deactivated that third engine. BB-8 has to start making repairs and, you know, he, he lowers himself inside of the X-Wing, which is really cool. You never got to see that, the, the droid coming into it and what's he seeing from inside. And he's kind of like putting out these little electrical fires almost, like these short circuits that are happening all around them. And he gets to the point where he's kind of running out of hands in terms of being able to, you know, put out all these electrical problems. And, and then at the end, he uses his head to kind of end, to kind of stop one of these shorts too, which is, it was kind of, it's a cute little moment. Now, as Poe is approaching the, uh, you know, Hux's area, he engages on these lines, which off the bat is something that is very unusual for Star Wars. There was this funny dialogue of him saying, hey, I want to talk to Hux. I have a message from the Resistance, from General Leia. And Hux is like, I'm right here. You, t-, you know, he's cursing at him. You tell me you filthy, blah, 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 blah. He's like, oh, yes, I need to talk to. So Poe is pretending not to be able to hear him. And Hux is delivering his ham lines over and over again because he wants to be heard. And it gets to the point where, like, one of his uh, lieutenants says, sir, I, th- I think he's just, you know, messing with you. <laughs> because he kept having to repeat himself. And it was a really funny little moment there that they created. Maybe it was a little too long or a little too repetitive, but it was actually funny. And it's I'm, I'm actually thinking, oh, wow, this film, they're not, you know, they're really kind of turning up the funny on this film, which made me think of Thor, which all of a sudden you're dealing with a certain type of film that is not afraid to go into the funny side. It's like, wow, that's very interesting. But yes, I thought they, the, that that little jokey sequence went a little bit too, just a little bit too far. So, but it's okay. You know, we kept going with the movie. We just keep going. We keep going. Okay, fine. So one of the Imperial officers makes a, a comment that the ship is too small, you know, to be able to shoot it down because of the speed that he's having. Uh, so that's why they have to engage the TIE fire. Again, that's a call to uh, a new hope. 
uh, you know, they have to go out and shoot them one by one because they're too small for their targeting guns. So, you know, as he's creating all this mayhem, you know, Poe with his X-Wing, the lead ship, the Dreadnought, is ready to fire on the planet. And as they fire, the last ship gets out and the resistance lieutenant says, punch it. And they escape right as the last, as that first, you know, massive shot hits the planet and they make it. And that, again, that punch it. And, and they're so full of these kind of moments. That's an Empire Strikes Back moment, I believe. When I think the hyperdrive is activated again or something like that. Uh, it was, I think it was a Han Solo line. And, as that ship finally leaves the planet, that's the ship I think Leia is in, and she looks over to C-3PO, who's part of, you know, he's on the the cockpit of the ship too, and she tells him, you know, wipe that nervous expression off your face, which again, really funny moment, you know, C-3PO, obviously always looks exactly the same, but it was a cute little moment, and again, it was all the signs like, wow, this is, you know, this film has jokes in it, it's really cool. There's a shot then where the X-Wing starts to bank and actually does like a drift, like when, like a car drift move where the car slides. Well, the sh in order to make a, a full turn, the X-Wing starts to kind of drift towards the camera and then shoots a couple of the TIE fighters in the process. So that's really cool. It's like, I don't remember seeing that before, a drifting effect. I don't know if that's because of that fifth engine. I'm not entirely sure, but it was really cool. So... As Poe is basically done with his part of, uh, I guess, this initial attack, all of a sudden we see in the distance, the bombers start coming in because, you know, he's cleared the path for the bombers to come and, you know, start dropping bombs uh, on the Dreadnought. So the bombers start, and the bombers are, if you remember the trailer, they're these ships that, uh, it's hard to describe them. They're almost like a rudder. Imagine a ship rudder, like a triangular kind of rudder. And it's the ship on top and the entire rudder part is where all the bombs are being kept. And we get, you know, an inside view of the different pilots that are, pi it's very, very World War II. The costumes they're wearing are very, you know, baggy with the hoses and straps and, and goggles, you know, very, very World War II uh, looking stuff. And then the bombing bay underneath, it's just, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of bombs all stacked on top of each other, more or less. And there's a bomber in that area who's ready to drop the bombs. But as those ships starts to get closer and closer, they're able to start shooting them down with TIE fighters and even some of whatever's left of their cannons, I would imagine. So we get to the point where there's, there's practically only one left. There's only one bomber left that hasn't been destroyed. And inside that bomber, the pilot realizes that there's nobody left and she can't get in touch with her bomber, the, the person that's actually supposed to drop the bomb. So she kind of, I guess she puts the ship on autopilot and heads over, you know, down to where the bombardier is and notices, I think the bombardier is dead or passed out or something like that. So she has to be the one, you know, that drops the bombs. But all of a sudden she gets hurt. Something happens. The ship is hit by something, by uh, laser fire or something. And she gets hurt too. And she's knocked down. She falls down into a, a lower level of the of the bombing area, but the trigger mechanism, the remote trigger, gets stays up on the top area where she was. So she's kind of down there, and she's trying to knock the mechanism, you know, off of that little ledge so she can catch it, because the ship is practically right over the area where she's supposed to drop the bombs. And at that point, uh, she kind of grabs like an amulet that she has inside of her shirt and pulls it out. And she's, it's almost like she's praying to this amulet or something. It's like a little tooth shape, like an animal tooth, kind of triangular, curvy, triangular shaped amulet. And she's kind of, you know, holding it very lovingly, let's say. And uh, she's able to 
kick the thing hard enough and knock the remote so the remote comes stumbling down towards her and passes her and she just reaches and grabs it at that moment and is able to drop all of her payload on the uh, dreadnought itself and you know it's a kind of like a slow motion you know finally that dreadnought is getting blown up and you know you see from even from inside the dreadnought the reaction of the imperial officers realizing their ship is blowing their main ship is blowing up and obviously we see her goes up in flames with the ship too now as that ship is exploding we go back to uh, the inside of the lead resistance ship and you know, you kind of get a head count of how many ships were destroyed. And it looks like at least half of the, of their fleet has been wiped out in the process of trying to get out of there between the support ships and the main ships. They lost quite a bit, but at least they're all able to activate their hyperdrive and jump into hyperspace. Then we get Hux's reaction that, you know, he just <laughs> lost the resistance again and he gets a call or a uh, holographic uh, projected image of Snoke coming in uh, and he's ready to, uh, you know, my lord, we, 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 we almost have them, don't worry about it. But Snoke just kind of grabs him, you know, force grabs him and throws him around the ship, embarrassing him, obviously, in front of all of his crew. And Hux tells him, don't worry about it. You know, they're at, he says something like they're at, they're at the long end of a string. And you're like, ooh, what does that mean? We next jump to Finn waking up from, I guess, his coma or whatever it is that he's under in that medical bay. And he's kind of, I guess, wondering through the hallways because he's waking up and trying to figure out what's going on. And BB-8 is chirping some sounds to Poe. And Poe has a good line. He says, Finn, naked, leaking, mad. Like he's trying to translate what BB-8 is trying to tell him. And then we get a shot of Finn walking like very disoriented. And he's wearing this suit. And he's got like water coming out of the suit. And he's he looks like he's in a complete haze. It's a, it's a very funny looking moment. And once again, we get that reassurance that, wow, there is going to be comedy, you know, throughout this movie, which is very unusual. Like, you know, it's like, this is just unusual, this much comedy in a Star Wars film. We jump now to Octu, which is the island where Luke is, and we get a little replaying of where we left off last time with Ray handing Luke the lightsaber. And we get, you know... We, we get to see him accepting the saber. He's kind of looking at it a little bit and he kind of tosses over the shoulder into the, you know, right behind them. And that is an unusual moment because yes, you do get the right reaction from the crowd. More or less people are laughing and it is kind of funny, but it's also kind of inappropriate. Kind of, I would even say kind of rude because, you know, the lightsaber is, is a very important thing to just kind of have Luke throw out. Kinda, and you know, we we do get a shot of the of the lightsaber because at first I thought he threw it into the water, but no, he just throws it on the glass. But we do get a shot of a couple of the porgs, these little birds. One of them kind of stomping on it, like standing on top of it, and then another one standing right at where the blade would come out. So you're like watching because any second now it looks as if the blade's going to come out and impale one of these little porgs, but it doesn't happen. And again, it's another little funny moment that it's. It's cute, but you're like, at this point, you're like, gonna go, you're like, wow, is this a comedy or is this a serious film? And it's very unusual, but it works. Again, that cute little moment. Anything with the porgs is going to work. I guarantee it. We do also get a shot of Luke's X-Wing underwater 
you know, over a cliff. So now we kind of, I guess, understand how he got to that location. He, he flew himself an X-Wing there. And all through this is happening, he's refusing basically to communicate with Ray and to, you know, she comes and tells him she's here, you know, to ask for help, you know, to the resistance, blah, 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 blah. And he's just kind of ignoring her and, and blowing her off. At one point, he kind of locks himself in his little hut and the door gets like blown off its hinges and it's Chewbacca that breaks the door down. And you get a, a little bit of a reunion with Chewbacca, with Luke. And it is believed, I guess, through the script and through what Luke says, that he has no clue that something has happened to Han because he even says, you know, he, he wants to know about Han, what's going on, you know, that sort of thing. So unless he's pretending not to know, Whatever force abilities he has do not allow him to recognize that something's happened to Han. Next up, we have a sequence in what could be considered Snoke's throne room, let's say. Hux and, and Kylo Ren go to visit Snoke in person, this time no longer a holograph. And you do see in the background a whole bunch of these new Praetorian guards kind of guarding Snoke uh, and some other other characters that are a little different than Praetorian guards, but are kind of hard to identify from so far away. And Snoke is basically needling Kylo Ren, you know, about his failures. And he's just kind of like demeaning him in front of Hux. And Hux obviously is loving it because anytime that those two go at each other, yeah, you know, they, they both uh, kind of uh, enjoy that. At one point, he even hits him with a bit of like Sith lightning, what we could remember as Sith lightning. And anticipating that he might fight back, that Kylo Ren might fight back, the Praetorian guards, they go on kind of like an attack mode. They, have, they don't necessarily attack, but they go on an attack posture. And then when they realize that Kylo Ren is not going to counterattack, they kind of return to their, you know, at ease stance with their weapons. Snoke even refers to Kylo Ren as a child in a mask. And when Kylo Ren leaves, he's in the elevator by himself and, you know, he's kind of stewing in his own hatred and his embarrassment and everything. And he takes off his mask and basically destroys it. He crushes it against the wall. You know, he's has one, he, he has one of his temper tantrums, basically, and destroys the mask. We go back to uh, Luke and Ray, and Luke continues to evade Ray. He will not help her no matter what. He even says to her, what do you, like, something like, like, what do you expect me to do? Take out my laser sword and take on the whole First Order by myself? Which is interesting that he would use the word laser sword because that is something that in the earlier drafts, I believe, of Star Wars is what they used to refer to a lightsaber as. But Rey doesn't give up. She keeps following him and following him and kind of nagging him <laughs> to a certain extent where Luke kind of reaches the edge of an, uh, like a cliff kind of area, and there are these large creatures sitting by there. And I, I, it's hard to describe what these creatures look like. I would call them like gigantic seals with arms, let's say. It's the best way to describe them. But Luke basically, now these creatures are huge, and Luke approaches one of these creatures, and he starts to basically squeeze <laughs> One of these creatures, uh, teats. I, th I think it's the proper pronunciation. <laughs> teats. And he's basically milking the creature for milk. And he's filling up a bottle with this greenish kind of milk. 
And then he starts drinking it, and he got he has all that green slobber all over his mustache and beard. And it, you know, and the creature makes like a face, like Ooh, you know, like kind of like I guess what a cow would make if somebody was milking it. But once again, you have a funny moment that is just kind of like over the top, inappropriate for Star Wars. It was just like. I mean, yes, I understand it's supposed to be a blue milk kind of throwback, and this is a modern version of a blue milk scene, but the fact that he's milking this creature, and at first, you're looking at these things hanging from the creature, and you're not exactly sure what they are, and he starts handling them, and you're like, what's happening here? And then, okay, I get it, he's milking it, It's like, but still, it's like... It's kind of funny, but it doesn't fit this series. It it doesn't fit this movie. I would expect that, and this is a phrase I'm going to probably use a lot, out of a a family guy or, or a robot chicken skit, you know, something like that to occur. So it's really weird that they decided to do something like that. These giant seals, they make a, like I said before, they make a weird face when he's kind of squeezing them. And then, like, Ray looks away because she's kind of disgusted, I guess, by it. Then at a certain point, Luke seems to be pole vaulting over an open uh, water area to the other side to where there's more cliffs. And the bottom of the pole has like a hook. And then we cut to him walking around with like a giant fish. I guess he caught with the, with this pole vault hook device. And Ray keeps kind of following him. They do make a point of seeing that Ray has... Some kind of a device, uh, later find out it's a communication device or a tracking device, more or less, that she's carrying with her, you know, while she's away from the rest of the resistance. At one point, Ray kind of is attracted to an area where there's this mist, and inside the mist, there's like a tree, like a dead tree. And you can kind of go into this, because this is like a huge tree. It's almost like a cave tree, if I sound familiar. She goes inside, and... You know, Luke kind of explains to her that this is, and, and you kind of see these, these books, which are, I guess, the, the Jedi journals or the Jedi instruction manuals or something to that effect. You know, he, he once again asks her, who are you? You know, where are you from or whatever? And she tells him, you know, Jack Goo. Uh, she's like, she, you know, she's nobody. She's from nowhere. And, uh, Luke even says, yeah, Jack Goo. He says, yeah. That's pretty much nowhere. So he kind of acknowledges that. But again, he's kind of delivering these like punchlines. He's not really having a conversation with her. And again, it keeps kind of throwing me off while I'm seeing these little jokes. Like I said before, the jokes work, but there's just too much of it. We then jump back to the resistance that are coming out of hyperspace. You know, they've been getting away from the... Uh, First Order, and now they're, I guess, entering clear space. And right off the bat, Poe is being uh, chastised by Leia, and she's demoting him because, you know, he kind of wanted to do things on his own without following her instructions in the beginning of the movie, which kind of led to this big battle they had and them losing so many you know, members of the Resistance. We also noticed that Leia has the same kind of tracking device that uh, Ray has. So I guess it's something between those two to kind of make sure that they each know where each other are. Now, all of a sudden, we get the First Order fleet shows up exactly where the Resistance uh, ended up at. And we find out that for some reason, through some manner, the New Order is capable of tracking 
where the resistance is going through hyperspace, which is something completely new that we hadn't seen before. Uh, now, what's interesting is if you go on the internet, uh, a few people have found that during Rogue One, in the scene where Jin is searching the data archives, looking for the plans of the Death Star, one of the many different files that she's going through, one of them has to do with hyperspace tracking, I believe, which I guess is something that they were working on uh, 30-some years before, and that they have finally perfected, you know, the Empire finally perfected it, and now that's in the hands of the New Order. So that is something that's popped up recently after watching the movie that are, people are kind of making the connection. And at the same time, they're theorizing on what it could possibly be and what could possibly do and that sort of thing. So as soon as they New Order gets there, they start deploying their fighters to attack the uh, Resistance fleet. Kylo Ren is shown in his own specialty fighter that we've seen, you know, a ton of new toys depicting this new fighter that he's flying. The Resistance, they're all about to board their ships, but they start to get bombed right away. And the particular launch bay where Poe is about to jump on his ship, and you do see shots of some of the other pilots getting ready to go out. All of a sudden, gets destroyed. Most of the ships in there get uh, blown up, and all the pilots are killed. And Poe gets blown off because he hadn't yet reached his particular fighter, and BB-8 also. They both get blown out of that whole area, somewhat injured. So what they then explain is that what's happening is that they're pursuing the fleet, but for whatever reason, the new order ships, you know, the Dreadnought and the multiple Star Destroyers, they cannot seem to catch up. They're within range, but they're not there yet. So they can kind of fire from afar. However, the smaller ships, the, the TIE fighters, can and do attack, you know, the, the convoy, if you will, of, of resistance ships. We get to a point where Kylo Ren is very close to the ship where Leia is at. And he can kind of feel her there. You can kind of see that they're both making a sort of connection. And his finger is on the trigger. And he doesn't fire, you know, when he could have fired on the ship where Leia is at. However, the second he kind of pulls his finger off the trigger, the two other TIE fighters that are accompanying him, they fire on her. And they destroy pretty much the bridge area where, you know, most of the ship is being controlled by and where Leia is at. And at that point, we get decompression, you know, of that area happens and everybody and all the equipment flies out and a huge explosion, you know, into space. And we do see uh, Leia, her body being, you know, sucked into space. And then as things calm down, we kind of see her floating in space and she looks kind of with a sort of a crystallized uh, hue to her skin because I guess she's freezing, you know, in, in space, in the vacuum of cold space. And then we start to hear this ethereal kind of music, you know, Star Warsy music. And all of a sudden she starts to wiggle and her eyes open and her finger moves. And she starts to, in this weird posture, kind of float all of a sudden with increased speed towards the ship that just got hit. And all of a sudden she's floating faster and faster and faster and faster. And it's almost like she's flying, you know, through, through space. It's really a weird moment. She is able to enter the ship, the area that got blown up. Uh, obviously there's nobody there because the, the whole area is 
destroyed. And then she's kind of entered through a door. And at the other side of the door, you have Finn and Poe are kind of opening a door to let her in. Now, there's so many things wrong with this scene as far as I'm concerned. And it is one of the many, many hangups that I'm going to have with this film. And let me address one continuity problem that I see, other than the ridiculousness of the scene. It's as if she opens this door, or Poe and Finn open this door, and she is led back in the ship. But in theory, the second you open any door, you're going to now decompress that area. There should be an airlock so that you can get in, and then you lock both doors so you can then get in the other door. I didn't notice any, let's just say, shielding type of device that would allow her to come in without having to open a secondary door. Again, maybe I'm getting hung up on the technicality of the theory of airlocks in space, but whatever. That is not the biggest problem. The biggest problem to me is, as it has been explained now by different people confirming, theorizing, but mainly confirming, that what we just witnessed was Leia having a force moment. Similar to, let's say, to, for example, when she was able to communicate with Luke during Empire, where she can kind of sense that Luke was calling out to her and she went to get him, you know, in the Falcon. Or during Jedi, where she feels that Luke is okay and he made it out of the Death Star before it blew up. Those are the only two examples in the past that we've seen her having Force abilities. Granted, yes, there is another... The other is Leia. Leia, you're, you know, you're strong with the force. My family's strong with the force, you know, all that. Okay. We, we get that. But my point is this for Leia to develop or for Leia to demonstrate a true force ability, let's say, I think it would have to happen a lot earlier in her life in different instances that we haven't seen yet to develop a power that is basically being able to escape being in a zero oxygen, you know, outer space type of environment, you know, that to me is something out of like the Clone Wars cartoon, for example. You know, it's something that is so off canon that it would have to be some kind of secondary story plot element, or an EU book, or like I said, the animated, one of the animated shows. And here, you know, when we finally see her showing some, not like, you know, a hint of a force ability, but a full-blown, holy crap moment of what the force can do for a person, I think it's just way too much. Now, the other aspect of the scene, and this is something that, it's really, it's really here, ne neither here or there, because we all know that Carrie Fisher died, and we were wondering, you know, would they take this opportunity during this almost death scene to be able to work it into the story? Now, granted, I, obviously, they, they were not able to do that because there were so many other scenes coming up that involved her, important scenes, that you just couldn't do that. And the fact of what happens later with Luke, you know, when you are getting rid of certain characters one by one, you know, all of a sudden it kind of throws you out of whack to all of a sudden say, well, you know what, we're going to get rid of Leia during this particular film. So... It's a shame they couldn't write it into the story because this would have been an, an interesting new way, you know, to be able to get rid of her character and kind of pa pass on the torch to another character that we see in a few minutes. But no, 
they I think what they did is they basically stuck to their to their guns and to the original script that they were using that they're using and proceeded to okay so she they bring her in they kind of bring it into medical and as as, she, as she's being brought into medical she's completely out cold like in a coma or something but she's alive because of the force you know we see that off her wrists the beacon that she has the communication device that she has kind of falls off the wrist and Finn picks it up and puts it on because i think he might know that it that ray has the other end so he kind of well at least he can keep track of what's happening and we do get a shot then of ray sleeping and her beacon is like pulsing you can see there's a light on the beacon whether that means that they're trying to get in touch with her or not i'm not entirely sure but now we you know we get a reassurance that there's the other beacon you know there is a connection happening here next we have a shot of chewbacca at night and he's kind of cooking dinner for himself and he's having what looks like to be these little roasted chickens that we then get a whole bunch of boys staring at him and practically crying, you see their you see one of them with these huge, huge round eyes, and he's basically trying to eat a pork <laughs> that he already killed and 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 cooked. And apparently, the, the the porgs make him so upset by their you know sad eyes that uh, he seems to kind of stop and and go back inside the ship. Another hilarious moment that you know what if I didn't mind that much because. If we are going to designate the Porgs as the comic relief of the film, you know, are they are the Ewoks basically of the film? You know, they they are the comic relief. That's fine. You assign it to a specific character. You don't have to do it to everybody. But it, it's it was a very very funny moment. We see Luke entering the Falcon, you know, for the first time in many years, and he sees and picks up the hanging dice that Han Solo has in the Falcon. I guess it's good luck dice. R two D two. Talks to uh, Luke, they reunite, and he tries to, in, in his own R2-D2 way, to try to, I guess, talk him into helping them out and helping Ray out and helping everybody out. And, you know, Luke is still somewhat reluctant. And then R2 plays the holographic message from A New Hope of Leia asking, you know, Obi-Wan for help. And that kind of seems to trigger something in Luke to kind of say, all right, you know, we have to... He even says to, to R2, that was a cheap move. One of the problems that I keep finding with Luke here is that Mark Hamill is an actor. He's an older actor now. He's not a young kid. And he cannot deliver his lines in the same manner he used to deliver them in the past as a young man. And unfortunately, especially when there's comedic lines or ironic lines, even like this cheap move line and stuff like that, the problem I keep finding is that he uses a different tone and inflection of his voice. And it's a certain tone that I've seen him use when he goes on talk shows and talks about a funny thing that happened to him. You know, he's almost never completely serious when he's being interviewed. He's always trying to crack jokes. Successfully, more or less, and sometimes not. But he goes on this kind of snarky tone about stuff. And it seems to bleed into his lines, into the way he delivers some of these lines, so that it's almost like you're not watching. It, it, it kind of takes you out of Star Wars because you've never seen him deliver lines like that. It's like a lot of it, and I guess it is because of the script, he doesn't really seem to take it that serious. Like 
we kind of do. Like I said, it reminded me of talk show appearances or even conventions. Like we, when I've seen so many conventions, uh, footage of him or even in person, I might have seen a couple where he does tell these stories and he, he changes his voice to tell the story, to make it more appealing and to make it more funny. And again, he, he goes from cranky old man to old guy trying to tell a joke mode in, in, in most of these scenes here, you know. It's, it's really unusual. You almost never hear the old Luke because he's always angry. He's always angry, angry, angry or sarcastic. So I guess after talking to R2 and R2 kind of guilting him into it, he kind of wakes up uh, Ray and says, all right, I'm going to give you three lessons and you're going to understand why, you know, the Jedi need to end, which is this whole kind of mantra that he has going about how all this is over, it's got to end, it's useless, it doesn't work, you know, there's no point in, in all this fighting, you know, I failed as a Jedi, I couldn't achieve this, you know, Kylo Ren is evil, I failed, you know, all of this guilt that he's carrying around, and it's like, oh my god, will you please stop, you know, uh, it's very different and very similar uh, in a way to Empire Strikes Back, you have the the, the Yoda, the, this is Dagobah, we're basically in Dagobah now, but Yoda kind of gave in a little faster uh, <laughs> to training Luke, and now Luke is kind of giving in, uh, you know, to um, all this other pressure that he's getting uh, about training Rey, so he is going to give her some kind of training. So we're back at the fleet now, and we're kind of figuring out where we're at. It is mentioned that Admiral Akbar is dead. He got blown up just like Leia got blown up and sucked into outer space. Except obviously he wasn't a force user like Leia. So he's a, a dead lobster in space. Leia is still unconscious. And they announced that they have a new leader, you know, while Leia is unconscious. And the leader's name is Haldo, who is played by uh, Laura Dern. I think Vice Admiral Holdem or something like that. And she notifies everybody that the fleet now, the, the resistance fleet, they're down to about 400 people now because the new order keeps blowing up ships. As some of these ships are running out of fuel, they're getting picked off and blown up. What they're doing is just heading in one direction and trying to stay ahead, you know, or, or at least in the same distance away from the fleet because the fleet has to recall the fighters. You know, the fighters are the only ones that seem to be able to get close enough to the fleet. But then they can't be – they said that they if you keep the fighters out there, there'll be no support. So they are on their own, which if you think about it, it's like, yeah, so what? You know, since when does the New Order give a crap about TIE fighter pilots? You know what I mean? It's like if their mission is to blow up the, the resistance, then the hell with the pilots. Blow them up with the pilots. Who cares? As long as you get your mission done. That's seems to be the normal operating procedure for uh, you know the new order or even the empire but here for some reason again it's a plot issue they decided to keep it this way so that we have this ongoing chase taking place so we're in chase mode this movie now is a chase movie but it's a very kind of slow chase it's not like a, a fast-moving action-packed chase with ships flying in and out of each other no this is more now of a they're over there we're over here we're both moving at the same speed they're hitting them from the back the main resistance ship you know has the shields up in the rear so that they're deflecting any incoming you know weapons barrage but they don't seem to be catching up to each other and the New Order, you know, Hux basically says, all right, what we're going to do is we're going to keep going and until they run out of fuel. Because sooner or later, they're going to run out of fuel and they're going to slow down. We're going to blow them up. So that's their plan. And as Holdo is there kind of giving her 
hi, everybody, uh, I'm in charge now speech, Poe tries to kind of get out of her what her plan is. What is the strategy of how they're going to get out of this? And she doesn't seem to have anything really that she can tell him, uh, but she does you know, call him a trigger-happy flyboy and is very, very sarcastic towards him. And the fact that I think she even reminds him of the fact that he was been demoted for a reason and that, you know, you can't do things your way because your ways gets, you know, people killed. And, the, you know, she's just pissing him off and she's not providing him with any leadership in terms of a plan he wants to know what are we doing and she doesn't seem to have a plan at least she won't tell him a plan <laughs> and her tone is so sarcastic and and it has such an antagonistic tone to it towards poe that you know the audience who relate to poe see her as such a bastard you know the way she's treating him in this you know desperate uh, you know needed time for leadership and he just she can, he cannot understand it he cannot understand why she's acting this way and how she's not providing the leadership that he seems to think we need they they need at this time so we cut the fin he is like near some um escape pods and he's kind of packing to leave because he wants to I believe, you know, get in touch with Ray and, and see what she's up to and make sure she doesn't come there because they're in trouble and she doesn't want her to come in the middle of this mess that they're in. But he kind of runs into this other girl named Rose who's there kind of like crying because it turns out this is the girl that her sister was the bombardier from earlier in the film who had that special amulet. She has the other half of that amulet, and she's all sad because her sister's dead, and she's kind of hysterical in a way, but she recognizes Finn. He's like, oh, you're Finn. You're the resistance. Uh, you're the famous guy that uh, used to be a stormtrooper and defected and blah, blah, blah. So she's almost like a, like a, like a fanboy or a fangirl, I guess, of Finn. Uh, but at the same time, she's like, yeah, I'm here to make sure nobody escapes. I had to zap a few guys and she shows him this taser she has. And he's kind of like trying to worm his way out of the situation, trying to get her the hell out of there so he can leave. But then she kind of realizes what he's up to and zaps him. So she kind of brings him back to the rest of the group. She's not going to let him leave. And they talk about, you know, with Poe, and I think BB-8 might be there too, about how can they resolve this problem that they have right now that they're being tracked. But they're doing it kind of secretly because, again, Holdo doesn't want to hear any of this. So he's kind of working on this plan with them on the side, including Rose, because Rose just dragged Finn back into the situation. So they kind of figure out a plan that if they can infiltrate the main ship, and of course it's going to be the Dreadnought, which is Snoke's gigantor ship, that Finn thinks that because he used to be a janitor... <laughs> or something, he can get into an area within that ship where he can deactivate the MacGuffin that will keep them from tracking them. They kind of figured somehow that they couldn't just blow up the ship, because if they blow up the ship, that means another one of the Star Destroyers can continue tracking them. But if they can kind of sneak into that ship, and, you know, without them being caught, they can deactivate it somehow, it would be different. They wouldn't be able to track them again. There's not a lot of technology devoted to giving you a, a really good reason as to how this works and why wouldn't it work. And there's also not too much of a reason as to why Rose, uh, who's like a, she's a technician, but why would she know anything about this sort of technology? I don't know. It's a stretch. 
but I guess it's because they wanted to put this character in the mix. So I guess, all right, fine. So she's part of the team now. She's part of the band. And I think even C-3PO might be in the room. <laughs> so they give him a little more FaceTime in the movie. The only problem that they can't seem to figure out is how to infiltrate the ship without being caught. And they talk about needing these special codes so that their ship can get in or whatever ship they're going to use to sneak in without being tracked, uh, without being noticed. So in trying to figure out how to sneak into the ship, what they do is they contact Maz Kanata. Why Maz? Why would she know anything? I I don't know. Uh, I guess it's because she was in the last film and they wanted to make some kind of connection with her again. And it also lets us know, or at least it confirms with us, the fact that she didn't die, you know, during the bombing, you know, the first order bombing of her castle. So it's a reassurance. So the way that they show you Mas Kanata is through a communication, through a, through a hologram. And, and she is, uh, she seems to be like fighting something off with a gun, you know, with a blaster and she's being shot at and she's shooting back and she's talking at the same time as she's shooting and she's saying something like, oh, I'm doing, I'm in the middle of some trade negotiations, this is very dangerous, uh, but what you need to do is, and she kind of tells him, what you need to do is you need to find a code breaker and to do that, you have to go to this special planet, you look for this special person, he's going to be wearing a special flower, that's the guy you need to find, you know, and, you know, good luck and she kind of jetpacks away. And it's like, uh, okay, so now they have their mission, more or less. They're going to go. They have to go out and find this person. Now, what's interesting about the Mass Kanata stuff is that the hologram that we see in the movie is almost exactly like the same hologram that I saw when we went to the Star Tours ride that has been currently modified for The Last Jedi. In one of those in-between talking segments, one of the latest times I've been there, the first time it was Poe giving you this little speech, cute little, you know, funny line kind of deal. But the second time it was Mass Kanata and it was Mass Kanata again. She was in this situation where she's kind of dodging bullets, blaster fire. And at the end, she jetpacks away when she's done talking to us. So... I'm not sure what came first. <laughs> I'm not sure if if this is supposed to be a, a subtle plug for Star Tours or Star Tours said, all right, well, uh, can you uh, take that shot? Uh, can you know, take this sequence and modify it so she says something that we need her to say for our purposes? I don't know. But she's basically a, a holographic cameo, if you will, you know, uh, compared to her first appearance in The Force Awakens. So the plan is, without anybody knowing, Finn and... Rose are going to sneak out of the fleet, out of that main ship they're on, and head to that planet. But before leaving, he gives Poe the tracker, you know, for Rey. So now we're back to Rey. Rey is um, sleeping and she wakes up and she sees something. We're not sure what she sees. Then we kind of do a kind of like a soft dissolve to Kylo Ren and he's in some kind of medical bay. He's being treated from his, uh, from the bandages or the the, the medical devices he's got on his face, and now those have been removed, and now all these guys are scarred. He's got all these little worker droids, medical droids working on his scar. And all of a sudden, he stops because he sees something. And they both see something, and they both see each other. And we get to experience one of these first kind of force connections that start to happen between them, where they can see each other's bodies, but they can't see each other's location. And at first she's startled because she thinks that she like he's in the room with her. And that particular connection ends with her 
taking a, I think she takes a blaster and shoots at him. He kind of feels, or he thinks he feels a blaster fire going into him, but nothing is in him. And she then, all of a sudden, he's not there. And he, she basically put a hole, you know, inside of the roof of the little hut that she's sleeping in, this stone hut. And he's gone, she's gone, you know, and he's gone from her and she's gone from him. They don't see each other anymore. And all of a sudden, from the outside, we see these weird little creatures we haven't seen yet. And they're referred to, I think, the housekeepers or the caretakers or something like that. These kind of like large rodent-looking things, let's say. I could be wrong if that's the exact family that I'm that we're dealing with. But they have these little hoods and these little tunics that they wear. And there's a lot of them. And... Luke even explains to her at some point, oh yeah, these are our you know, caretakers. They, they, for thousands of years, they've been watching, you know, this, this Jedi temple area and they kind of take care of things. And it's like, okay, so now we know what these weird things are, but they're very upset at the fact that, that there's a hole in there and they're kind of like gesturing to her, like, what the hell just happened here? Why did she shoot, you know, the roof of our house and that kind of stuff? So the first lesson begins with Luke and Ray, let's say, and he, uh, he brings her to the edge of this, uh, rock and has her sit on the rock and close her eyes. And he starts to tell her to like, kind of like reach out with the force and that's sort of, what do you feel and what do you see and, and stick out your hand. And he takes like a, a, a long, uh, leaf. And while she has her eyes closed, he's like, do you feel this? And he's basically tickling her hand. And he's like, yeah, this is the, I'm tickling your hand with this leaf. And she's like, yes, I feel it. I feel it. And then he's like, it's, a, you know, then the joke's over. People laugh because he's, he's kind of joking with her. But again, it's another one of these moments where it's like, you know, dude, can you take this serious for a minute? You know, stop cracking the jokes, but they continue to do these sort of things. And he starts to kind of tell her about this whole new, I guess, philosophy that he's developed or that he's come to the conclusion of having to do with the force that it doesn't belong to anyone the sith or the jedi and you know how overconfident the jedi are and how evil the sith are and how you know the force will be there even after the jedi are long gone and the sith no longer exists and he's talking to her about you know the 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 water and the cold and the dark and the light and you know all these extremes that he keeps telling her about that was kind of cool because it is very Yoda-ish in terms of training and, and actually learning something other than just being sarcastic and, uh, you know, grumpy old man mode. At one point, when he's kind of talking about, like, seeing the dark part of the Force, she starts to kind of focus on it a lot. And all of a sudden, like, the rock that she's near cracks in half and some of the rocks start to levitate, like little tiny rocks. You know, Luke kind of starts to freak out a little bit. It's like, okay, enough training. You know, I, he goes away. You know, he takes a break or something because he gets freaked out because he's seen this type of thing before and it didn't end very well. So while this is happening, Poe begins or initiates the plan to get Finn and Rose out of there. So they, uh, they snuck into some kind of ship and they took off and without being noticed by the resistance, even monitoring them, that he's able to leave. Now, what's interesting here is the, situation of, well, how is it that you have a small fleet of ships that cannot seem to get anywhere without being seen? All of a sudden, now they're able to deploy a smaller ship without nobody noticing them. Not only the resistance doesn't notice them, but obviously the the First Order, who is trying to destroy all these little ships even, they can't seem to notice them either. I'm not exactly sure how they figure that one out. So at this point, Ray is alone uh, near the Falcon. She's doing some of her 
kind of like meditative training type of stuff. She goes inside to check on Chewie, and there's a cute shot of, again, the, inside the Falcon, there's porgs everywhere. There's porgs eating the seats. There's porgs uh, with nests, with babies inside. And, you know, Chewbacca is getting a little bit overwhelmed by so many porgs everywhere. They're almost like tribbles. And while she's outside, another connection takes place with Kylo Ren. And, you know, they exchange some words. This time she doesn't attack him, but she's kind of like angry at him, obviously. And, you know, you're a monster and this and that. And, and and then he even says to her, you know, did Luke tell you what happened at the temple? Because she has a certain idea of what happened, but there appears to be other versions of what happened. But by the end of that connection, once that connection gets severed, what's interesting is that on the Kylo Ren's side, he notices his hands are wet, which is unusual because it was raining where she was, but not where he is, you know, inside <laughs> one of the uh, dreadnoughts. So you're starting to see that the these connections that are being made are becoming more real. They're not just these long-distance telephone calls, basically. Now they're visions, and now they're getting secondary uh, feedback in terms of now they can he can feel, you know, rain in his hand. So Finn and Rose arrive at Canto Bight. Canto Bight is described basically as a uh, a casino planet, uh, a place where people are playing games and having fun and money and booze is just everywhere. Luxuries and and wealth and all kinds of stuff like that. So they're there, you know, with BB-8 and off the bat, the second they get there, Somebody starts yelling to the police that these guys just parked their ship here and they're not supposed to park here. You know, off the bat, they're, it's kind of like they're in trouble already. The second they just step there, instead of parking somewhere hidden, they park somewhere where they, they already have people that are kind of like trying to figure out who these people are. Now, the visual look of this place, like I said before, to me, it reminded me of something like Casino Royale. It's a Bond villain planet you know it's super luxurious and super expensive looking with people dressed you know beautifully in tuxedo well not tuxedos but whatever the equivalent of a tuxedo in the star wars galaxy is you know it's that kind of a place there's gambling happening everywhere and people are having fun and they of course have to do a couple of little funny things here or there there's a scene uh, where uh, like a little drunk space alien looking thing is putting uh, coins inside BB-8 because he thinks BB-8 is like a slot machine. And he just keeps putting coins and more coins into him. Finn is like amazed and he loves it. He's like, oh, I love this place. This is wonderful. This is just such a great place. And then Rose is kind of, oh, well, you shouldn't be, you know, so excited about it because, you know, this is where these people, you know, they all profit from the, uh, from the war and, the, you know, they are working for the new order. And, you know, uh, this is what happened to me. And if you look over there, over the, over this balcony area, they look over and there's like a racetrack and, and, and she tells Finn to, you know, look closer and he looks through these like binocular looking things and you could see these animals that are um how should i describe them it's a racetrack what normally would be like horses but they're not as they don't look like horses they look something different to me you know what they reminded me of this ridiculous movie that some people love called the never-ending story and there was this this flying dragon hairy white dragon thing to me, it kind of looked like that. They have these very expressive eyes, and, and these creatures have these long kind of ears. They're kind of like deer and horses, and I don't know what else. It's it's a, it's a funny, weird 
type of character and and I guess people could ride them you know uh, like a horse around the racetrack and she and but you see like the handlers that are zapping them with like elect uh, rods and even there's there's like a whole bunch of little kids that are kind of like assistants and they're getting zapped too apparently if they do the wrong thing or something so she kind of tells them like you know the, the first order you know they're very cruel and they've abused my family and the planet we were on and then they used us you know for target practice or something I don't know you know she was giving him this horror story about how these people live in, in such luxury at the expense of everybody else and how evil they are all are. So he, I guess, is supposed to feel bad that he likes that so much, which is kind of, you know, let's just say it was a very heavy handed social commentary. And I, I think I know what they're getting at. Uh, they're trying to make this distinction, this class distinction, which Normally, don't get me wrong, if you know my politics, I, I, you know where I sit, you know, what side of the fence I sit when it comes to class politics. However, for a Star Wars movie to be hit over the head with something like that so blatantly, you know, it's kind of like I get it and I don't need to be reminded of that. I'm here to watch Star Wars. I'm not here to get, you know, a, a class distinction morality uh, lesson. That's the the type of uh, purpose, I guess, that that's Rose's character. That's the, the part of her function, really, is to kind of point these things out, you know, uh, versus somebody like Finn. Now, now, granted, Finn is not like a rich guy or anything, but he is so impressed by these riches that he kind of doesn't, uh, you know, has no clue about, you know, the underbelly of all this that's happening. And from what I understand, these, these horse-type things are called fathiers. Fathiers or something like that. I don't know. They're very beautiful, graceful kind of animals. They, they look very nice. <laughs> but they're a little bit out of place. You know, we, we've seen animals before in Star Wars. You know, all kinds of animals in Tatooine and in Hoth. You know, domesticated animals. And uh, But here, it's like, I don't know. They look a little too, too fantasy for me. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. And she does point out that, you know, this place is completely full of weapons dealers, these people that just deal in weapons. And I'm sure that they're enriching themselves, uh, you know, through all these wars that are happening. And they're just sitting there pretty, making money out of uh, First Order and, 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 and everybody else, you know, being in, in a state of war. Which, again, they're kind of beating you with the morality stick, you know, which is like, okay, I get it. Let's go. Keep going. As they are scouring the uh, the casino floor looking for the guy, far in the distance, they kind of see a guy, and they're like, oh, I think that might be him, because he's wearing the, the that particular color flower, a red crimson flower or something, and right as they're about to approach him, the police shows up and they arrest them, because the guy says, that's those two that parked there illegally, blah, 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 so they basically get arrested for having, I guess, a parking ticket uh, for parking in the wrong uh, area or something like that, which is like, really? Uh, one quick little note here is that the guy that plays the codebreaker that they were supposed to meet, the guy with the flower, that's uh, Justin Thoreau, which is uh, an actor best probably remember from Friday Night Lights and The Leftovers, HBO's The Leftovers. He l looks almost nothing like him because they, they have all kinds of weird stuff on his face, but I guess he must be a friend of somebody because he got a quick little cameo there. So we go back to Ray now and she's training by herself with her pole. She's just doing basic like 
almost martial arts type of moves with her pole. And at one point, she actually picks up uh, her lightsaber, and or Luke's lightsaber, really, and starts to train with the lightsaber. And, and she slices through uh, near a rock and gets a little too close to the rock and slices the rock, and the rock goes tumbling down the hill. And it crushes this little cart that the caretakers are, are using to carry some of their crap around. And again, another little funny moment, and they're looking at her like, what the hell just happened? Who, who, who did this to us? You know, that kind of thing. She starts talking to Luke, and they kind of start arguing about something, and then they start both kind of jousting with, with poles to the point where she knocks him down, and she grabs a lightsaber. You know, she grabs the lightsaber this time instead of her pole, and everything just stops right there because, like, this fight is getting a little too personal and you know he's telling her about you know what a failure he is again he's back into this 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 you know i'm a loser mode and everything is awful you know and he tells her about how he failed kylo ren and how he had 13 students and then we get to kind of see a flashback of luke approaching kylo ren and then lightsabers ignite and uh kylo ren brings down the entire house on top of them and then luke is able to escape which we see in this kind of flashbacky kind of sequence of climbing out of the you know the fire and the the debris and all that stuff and luke tells him that he ended up you know he had like 13 students he was training and kylo ren took a couple of them with him and then they killed the rest of the students you know as part of his uh, betrayal we see the resistance ships, more of them are running out of fuel and are getting destroyed. So they're doing their, their numbers are starting to dwindle now. Finn and, uh, Rose now are, they're in jail. They're thrown in like a kind of like a local jail. And in the jail cell, they meet DJ played by Benicio del Toro. He is this mysterious character they have here, and he kind of tells them that, you know, he could get the job done. He could do it. He can get the job done. He could be the, he could be their code breaker because that's what he does. One little characteristic they added to his character is that he stutters. And honestly, to me, the stutter looked bad. Not that it was a badly acted stutter, but it was kind of like an unusual little thing to add to a potential bad guy because we don't know what his intentions are at this moment he's uh, kind of like a shifty mysterious kind of guy and to me like many other things like the comedy and again unless they it was meant to be funny which a stutter is not really that funny to tell you the truth depending on how you use it if you, in a comedy it might be funny but this isn't a comedy so i'm not sure if it was supposed to be funny all i can tell you is that it it stuck out. It stuck out too much as far as I'm concerned. Even though they kind of used it very minimally, I don't think there was a need for that. I don't think it was needed to develop this character, to, to give the character more of a specific characteristic. But he's able to break them out, and they also run into BB-8, who is also trying to break them out at the same time. So now they're all on the run. At one point, BB-8 starts to shoot all these coins that uh, that I guess that other guy was putting into him at some of the police. So he's able to... Uh, ward off the cops by throwing money at them so they kind of go down these tunnels and end up in an area where i guess they're holding all these uh horse creatures and there's a couple of little kids inside the stalls which are i don't know if the kids are slaves or what they are or orphans or something because they they seem to be under the control of these other people but they're kind of like it's it looks like they're being treated pretty bad and before the little one of the little kids can press like this alarm because they just ran into them, Rose shows the kid a ring that has the symbol of the rebellion, the old rebellion symbol. And the kid kind of lets her go, and they all escape riding these 
weird horse things. Now, what you have next is a sequence, uh, an action sequence of them riding through the streets and being chased by cops and uh, avoiding things. And the horses are all over the place and they're going down the alleyways. And at a certain point, they jump into the actual inside of the casino and they're just destroying, they're trampling everything and destroying everything. And as they're riding through the city and even through the casino, the only thing I kept thinking, I kept coming back to me is like, this is like I'm watching a Harry Potter movie right now. It had that feel of, of Harry Potter, you know, riding on top of some kind of dragon or something. Again, it wasn't Star Wars anymore. It was some fantasy, something else. It didn't feel like Star Wars. Uh, you could barely see the characters on top of the horses, or those animals. Uh, so it was bizarre. One cool little thing I did notice was that the cops, their uniforms, especially their helmets, they looked exactly to me like the, the back of them, like samurai helmets. Like the back of that, like I guess what the original Darth Vader design used to look like is this this, this multi-layer sections to the back of the helmet, which really, I mean, t- to me, I saw that, I'm like, oh my god, that, that's like samurai, it's, it's wonderful. So all these animals now, they're back outside running around like crazy. The cops are chasing them. Everybody's chasing them. And they end up going up like hills into the into the cliffs, into the woods or whatever the hell it is that these horses come from. And Finn and Rose kind of veer off to a different area. And the cops start chasing the rest of the other horses. So they're kind of alone now. And unfortunately, as they're about to reach their ship, the police shoot up their ship, so now they have no ship. And they're kind of stranded now. And, you know, they get off the horses and they let the horses go. And all of a sudden, DJ appears on a ship. And BB-8 appears, too. And they are rescued by them. So we're back to Luke now. And he, you know, through his meditative states, he tries to get in touch with Leia. And Kylo Ren also once again connects with Rey having another one of those force connections. And he claims to her that what happened between him and Luke was because Luke tried to attack Kylo Ren. And that's how this whole thing came about, of him defending himself and, I guess, escaping. Ray, during this period, uh, is also able to visit what is the equivalent of Empire's Dark Cave in this part of the island where there is kind of like cave she falls down this hole into water underground water and then she swims up and finds this kind of like a mirror image and she's able to kind of see many reflections of herself in this mirror but what she really wants to see is her parents she wants this mirror area to show her her parents at one instance you do see these two figures kind of coming towards her on the other side of this reflective surface but when you get close enough to it it's just herself so it is a very, uh, you know, weird kind of scene. And it's supposed to, I guess, represent the dark side, I guess. And at one point, she once again is communicating with Kylo Ren and is telling him about this experience of her wanting to see her parents. And Kylo Ren is able to kind of reach out to her and she reaches out to him and they actually are able to touch each other's hands, each other's fingers. So now you have an even closer connection that's taking place from a very long distance. And Luke walks into that and he once again loses his, <laughs> he flips out and she 
picks up the pole and starts arguing with Luke and they start fighting once again. And she demands to know that, you know, was Luke responsible for Kylo Ren's existence, for turning him into this evil monster that he is? And Luke gives his side of the story, and we see it again, of Luke approaching him because he claims he knew that uh, Kylo Ren had been infected basically by Snoke, and he was ready to betray everybody. And he kind of walks up to him while he's asleep, lights up his lightsaber and is thinking, let's say, of maybe killing him, but he doesn't do it and he feels horrible about it. So before he can do anything else, after he had changed his mind, Kylo Ren, or back then it would be Ben, wakes up, lights up his lightsaber and they start, before they can start going after each other, he collapses the entire building on them. So now you have a different version of what happened between those two. Ray tries to convince Luke that she thinks she can turn him back to the good side of the Force, similar to what Luke did with Vader, but he does not believe her. He, he does, it's impossible. It's not going to happen. So at this point, Ray is frustrated and she says she's going to leave and she does. We see the Falcon take off and they are gone. Luke stays behind, obviously. Luke goes back to the area where the the tree is with, you know, with, where, where all those books are kept. And his intention is to burn it down because he's like, he's had it with all this force stuff. You know, it's people are getting hurt and it doesn't accomplish anything and blah, blah, blah. And he's ready to burn it down. But before he can, guess who appears? Yoda. Yes, Yoda from all the other movies. And he tells Luke, you know, don't worry about the force and don't worry about this and that. And he's like, you know, I'm, I'm going to do it myself. So Yoda kind of triggers like lightning to come from the sky and burns the tree down himself. So Luke doesn't even have to burn down the tree. He says it doesn't really matter. Those books don't mean anything. You know, makes some kind of comment as to how dry they are in terms of how, you know, useless I guess they are and all that sort of thing. Yoda tells him that, you know, failure, which is what Luke is feeling, is one of the greatest teaching tools for a teacher, you know, that, it, that failure is not necessarily a horrible thing. You learn great things from your failures. While in their uh, escape ship, DJ tells Rose and Finn that he needs a special price to be able to uh, be their code breaker, and he wants the amulet that Rose has, and she kind of reluctantly gives it to him, and Finn doesn't want her to, but she's like, you know, that's the mission, so here, take it. So he kind of weasels his way into having something. Plus, the ship apparently is full of money because he stole that ship from someone else. So he shows them also the fact that, you know, this particular person that owned this particular ship, which, you know, had a manifest of all kinds of first order transports and ships and fighters that he would be selling them off. And he also had Rebel X-Wing fighters. So, you know, this is a, a gun dealer, a, a weapons dealer who was basically selling to both sides, you know, just to make money. And he kind of explains to them that it's just business. It's not a personal, you know, this is just how the galaxy functions through these kind of transactions. We see the resistance again, and more ships are getting lost. Poe once again approaches Holdo for information about, you know, what is the plan? How are we getting out of this? And she just will not give him any information. But he does notice that she seems to be fueling smaller crafts to, I guess, abandon the, the main ships. And he then loses his marbles because he feels that you can't just throw everybody on these 
you know, defenseless, weaponless, shieldless, smaller ships and abandon the larger ship. And he, he calls her coward and she, she's, she's being a, you know, she's being treasonous to, you know, as to what she's doing. So he goes off and talks to Finn because he's got to figure something out. He communicates with Finn, letting him know that things are getting bad here, that whatever you guys are doing, you better do it fast. We now cut back to Ray, and she is in on the Falcon, heading towards back to where she came from, you know, back to the, the battlefield, more or less. But she's prepping an escape pod because she's going to head towards Kylo Ren's ship. She wants the confrontation, basically. At the same time, Rose and Finn and DJ are approaching the New Order fleet, and they use DJ's codes to get through without being noticed. At this point, Poe updates Holdo on what's happening, and she will still not play ball with him, and confrontation ensues where he pulls a gun on her and arrests her, more or less, so that he could continue with the mission that they're on. So... Finn, Rose, and DJ, they infiltrate the First Order. They put on uniforms that they steal, and they're on their way to figuring out, you know, how to deactivate the tracking system. And even BB-8, they put it like a, like a garbage can on top of him to kind of disguise him, more or less. But there's another BB-8 kind of unit, an evil one, if you will, that kind of notices something weird, something fishy going on. So he starts to kind of investigate what these three people are doing plus the weird looking box next to them ray arrives at the dreadnought where kylo ren is and immediately she's uh, arrested more or less detained and he takes her up the elevator to go talk to snoke and while they're riding up the elevator she's telling him about how she wants to bring him back to the light side of the force you know that she's trying to her best to turn him back but he doesn't seem to be playing ball with her and they reach the throne room Finn and uh, DJ and Rose are getting very close to where they're heading, and DJ uses the amulet that Rose gave him to be able to deactivate a panel so he could reach certain controls that he needs to get to. And then as soon as he's done, he returns the amulet to her. So kind of like a it was like a nice gesture returning that thing that we all know it means a lot to her. Poe is able to take over the bridge after he detains Holdo, but Holdo is able to free herself and then she sends her guards, you know, in the direction of Poe now. So you have within the resistance a rebellion taking place internally. Finn and Rose and BB-8 are unfortunately arrested <laughs> once again inside uh, before they could reach the final destination of the area where they would have been able to disengage the tracking system. And amongst the troops, Phasma comes out to kind of welcome Finn back, sarcastically welcome Finn back, you know, to the First Order. The bridge where Poe is kind of holding out is finally breached, and out of there, Leia steps out, out of her coma, and she stuns Poe, hits him with a stun gun, the similar gun they used for New Hope that she had in that movie, with the same kind of stun effect, with those round uh, blue rings. And... Now, Holdo starts the evacuation. She starts getting everybody into smaller ships, and they're out of there. And, uh, you know, Leia gets on a ship herself, uh, including Poe, who's passed out. They bring him into, into one of those smaller ships. But Holdo tells Leia she's going to stay behind the main ship because somebody has to keep that ship running 
and distract the First Order while the smaller ships are getting away. So now we're in the throne room and Snoke takes control of uh, Rey's lightsaber, which is really Luke's lightsaber. And he admits to her that the connection that he, that she and Kylo Ren were having was something that he orchestrated himself because he knew that there was doubt inside Kylo Ren. So he kind of used this connection to let her feel like she was accomplishing something, uh, which she wasn't. And that it was him that allowed those connections to be made to entrap her, basically. And that he purposely allowed her to see Kylo Ren's weaknesses, and that is that doubt that he still has about his father and his mother. When Poe finally wakes up from uh, being stunned, he can see that they're closing in on a planet. The planet is Crate, and Leia explains to him that Holo's plan was to get close enough to this planet to be able to then be able to get on these ships and be able to get out and escape while they're focusing on the main ship, all these little ships can escape and come down to crate to an old, I guess, an abandoned rebel base that they had back there. And Poe kind of realizes that he that they're right, that yes, that, that that is a good plan. Now, the question becomes, from a writing perspective, is that why did we go through this whole rigmarole of mutiny when all that Holder had to do was tell him what the plan was? I don't think there is a good answer. I think it's just to kind of muddle things up. It's like a Three's Company episode. If this person would have said this to that person, then the next 20 minutes of the show really need to happen. It's always a misunderstanding. Well, here we are again. We're in a situation where this whole thing could have been avoided if Holder just told him what the plan was. Uh, now, I know that, yes, Holder's a vice admiral or something. She doesn't have to tell Poe anything. But she even tells Leia, she's like, oh, I like him. He's really good. It's like, wait a minute. You were just calling him a jerk, basically, and, and humiliating him in front of everybody, and you like him? It's like, that is just bizarre. I think that's one of the weaknesses in the script is that this whole particular sequence was useless. It could have been so easily avoided, logically avoided, by just having somebody talk to someone. I don't know. I don't understand why. But I think it weakens is one of the weak points of the story. Meanwhile, Finn and Rose are getting set to be executed. <laughs> Phasma wants to make sure they die a horrible death. They don't want to just shoot them. So they're they're kind of playing the Von building. It's like, before we shoot you, we're going to do something unpleasant. You know, we're going to make sure you suffer. And so they bring out these executioner troopers, and they're holding these electronic kind of axes, if you will, and I guess they're going to cut their heads off or something like that. But before they do that, DJ appears and he's like, yes, I'm here to take my reward because he kind of, I guess, turned them in and he gave the First Order some additional information about these additional ships, apparently, that are being evacuated from the main ship. So now they know that there's a, a ruse going on back there. And he, uh, you know, says goodbye again, you know, it's just business, you know, have a good day, that kind of thing. So now the First Order is starting to focus their uh, firepower on the smaller ships. The smaller ships that are trying to make a break for the planet, they're getting shot down left and right. So they're really, really running low on people at this point. In the throne room, Ray tries to use the Force to grab the lightsaber, but Snoke kind of takes it away from her, has the lightsaber do this round a circle around there, hits her on the head, and returns to him. He then forces her closer to this viewer station where she can see 
the rebel fleet of escape ships getting destroyed by one by one. Now, this whole sequence is super, super reminiscent of Return of the Jedi. And that is one of the things that I keep noticing. And my son Kyle noticed it right away when we came out of the movie. And a lot of people are saying it. This movie is a combination of Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. They try to combine those two movies in terms of the the beats, the certain plot elements are being repeated over and over again. You know, I know that people complained that uh, originally when The Force Awakens came out that it was a rehash of A New Hope. To me, this is an even bigger rehash of Empire and Jedi. She then tries to force grab Kylo Ren's lightsaber and... As soon as she lights it, uh, Snoke is able to take it away from her once again and then levitates her and starts to kind of torture her in a way, up in the air, shifting her around and that sort of thing. And then Snoke orders Kylo Ren to kill her. So he gives Kylo Ren his lightsaber and starts to kind of push her closer to Kylo Ren because he kind of wants him to do the same thing that he did to Han Solo. You know, when, when she's close enough to him, he wants him to ignite his lightsaber and kill her. You know, he's boasting about how he can feel all of uh, Kylo Ren's feelings and how he's getting ready to kill her and blah, blah, blah. And he's preparing his lightsaber or whatever. And at the same time, you could see Kylo Ren's other hand is gesturing and Luke's lightsaber that is sitting next to Snoke starts to kind of wiggle and move a little bit. And at a certain point where, where he says, okay, kill her now or something like that, he gestures to the, to Luke's lightsaber and it ignites. And it stabs Snoke right through the middle and then pulls the lightsaber towards him, cutting Snoke in half in the process. And Snoke goes down, apparently dead, in two pieces right there. And at that point, the Praetorian guards attack. And, you know, this movie is almost three hours long. And for me, this sequence, this battle between the Praetorian guards and Rey and Kylo is the best thing of the movie. I've never seen a scene like this. It is kind of like um, the Phantom Menace when we got to a lot of stuff that wasn't really that exciting. And then we got to see Darth Maul, that fight at the end. Well, this one blows that fight out of the water. They engage on this kind of like, I think it's like eight versus two fight where they break into two groups and they're attacking with all these different weapons and these different styles and they're kind of holding up their own and little by little the Praetorian guards are getting decimated left and right and it is just a fantastic fantastic fight sequence which to me it is the highlight of this whole movie this whole movie has so many plot holes and and just inappropriate moments but this I don't want to say it saves the movie but this is definitely the highlight of this whole movie for me and they get to the point where they are able to kill off all the guards. And then she, you know, Ray is like, all right, let's, you know, let's go. We can get out of here now. Let's leave. And then Kylo Ren is like, no, wait a minute. Uh, I think I want to stay. And I think I want to be in charge. And I think I want you to be in charge with me. So it's, it's like a reverse Vader type of situation. You know, after killing the master, instead of leaving with Luke, he wants her to it's you know he wants her to join her instead he wants to he wants to be the one to rule everything and he even tells her that the truth about her family was that her parents were absolutely nobodies there were a bunch of scavengers who sold her for drinking money and whether that's true or not i don't know we don't know at this point 
it is possible. That's the way they want to go. And right now, the way things stand is, again, one of the most craziest things about this movie is the fact that, okay, Snoke is dead. And she's now told that her parents are nothing. This is one of the biggest problems with the movie is that they created this mythology with The Force Awakens that now they seem to want to refuse to follow. Ryan Johnson and, and a lot of people are praising him for taking a fresh turn with the story. Things that we thought were going to be answered or continued upon with the rest of this particular trilogy, it almost seems like they're purposely doing a, a reboot midstream. Snoke, eh, it doesn't matter who he was. It did matter who he was. People wanted to know who he was. And there are apparently, at least now, if they continue in this manner, there's plenty of theories that Snoke is not dead. Very interesting. Good. Maybe he's not. I don't know. There's plenty of theories that Kylo Ren told her that her parents are nobodies just to mess with her, just to piss her off. Uh, maybe later on they will be something special about her parents. We'll see. This is the type of course correction or course change that they seem to be making in the script that you would when you reboot a franchise from scratch. But this is, again, midstream. It's almost as if every chapter of this trilogy, the director has the freedom to completely change the rules and th that there is no long-term plan. It's almost like whatever negative feedback J.J. Abrams got for the first film, this director has gotten the freedom and the decision-making to then change things and just say, no, okay, this is going to be different now. And then come the next film, it goes back to JJ again, which means he can now course correct again. So there doesn't seem to be much continuity in the canon that is being established now. And that is one of the things that Lucas at least was very careful about not contradicting himself too much. Granted, he stepped on a couple of landmines here or there. But at least within the trilogies, you know, you try to be consistent. But again, there are certain aspects of this movie that it's like, what's going on here? Do they, I mean, are they trying to make this, you know, Thor Ragnarok, which was full of comedy and it worked perfectly? But this movie doesn't really need that much humor. There was plenty of humor as far as I'm concerned in uh, Force Awakens, but here they went a little over the top with the humor. That doesn't mean the movie is horrible, but it, and, and as I mentioned, this certain scenes are fantastic. I mean, the opening of this movie, the entire opening sequence and the setup is great. This throne room battle, amazing. Best duel I've ever seen, you know, as far as I'm concerned. So we're back to the resistance main ship and Holdo is the only one in it. And she is noticing that yes, the escape ships are all now starting to get decimated and pretty soon they're all going to be dead. She's got to do something. So she starts to kind of turn her ship in the direction, not where it was going, but turn it completely around and head towards the first order fleet. Kylo and Ray both start to kind of fight over Luke's lightsaber and they both pull so hard on it, but you know, with the force that they snap the thing in two. Finn and Rose are getting very close to getting executed. And at the last second, Holdo engages hyperdrive on her ship and it heads directly towards the dreadnought where everybody is at at this point. They use an effect so that the ship kind of seems to tear the other ship in many different chunks or different sections 
and a lot of it is like in flames but it's completely silent and then a few seconds later you do hear the boom of the explosions taking place and that was a cool little effect that they used inside where finn and uh, and rose are explosions are going off everywhere and finn and rose start to escape and whatever troops are alive they come after them and phasma comes after them and then out of the blue we get bb8 inside an atst starts shooting down on the troopers so the top of the atst pops open and you see bb8 there again this is a this was a difficult sequence because to me it's way over the top for bba to be manning an atst to shoot down things to me it felt like something out of the clone wars or more specifically something out of rebels something where like chopper for example would be doing this acrobatic thing and handling some kind of it's it's too much it's way too much but that's the way they go and you know he rescue you know he saves them from being mowed down but then Phasma has one more confrontation with Finn and they both go, you know, hand to hand fighting each other with, um, Phasma has like a spear and Finn has like one of those uh, riot batons and they go at it left and right and left and right to the point where Finn finally knocks her down and, you know, beats her and the area where she is crumbles down and she goes flying into a fiery pit and we actually see a crack in her helmet and you could see her eye or whatever. And that is supposedly the end of Phasma. Now, again, we're back to the situation where that's it. That's all we get out of Phasma. We never know. Was there a point to her? Was there some backstory? Is this just another way of selling more books and comic books? You know, if you want to know more about this character, is there a future or are we supposed to assume she died in, the, in this fiery pit? I don't know. Maybe it is. Given how they're handling other situations in this movie, it looks like that's the end of Phasma. They do have a cool little line where Phasma says, Finn, you are always scum, and he goes, rebel scum, which, again, it's a throwback to Return of the Jedi, and it makes a nice little bumper sticker, and I'm sure the fanboys, you know, it's like, yeah, and it was kind of like, yes, but it's like kind of like, it's just... Again, it's it's winking at the audience way too much. It's 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 an unnecessary wink at the fanboys. So Finn and Rose and BB-8, they all escape the ship. They grab a shuttle and they're able to escape the dreadnought. Hux arrives at the throne room and sees the devastation there. Snoke is dead. Kylo Ren seems kind of half dead. He actually reaches for, I guess, his his gun, his blaster, and maybe he's going to make sure that Kylo Ren is dead. But Kylo Ren gets up really fast, and he's like, "Okay, we have to go get them, and we have to do this, and we have to do that." And he says, "Yeah, because Ray killed, you know, Ray. We have to find Ray. She killed uh, Snoke." And and Kylo says, "You know, that's it. Get the troops ready. We're going to attack." And Hux is not too much into it, and Kylo starts to force choke uh, Hux. And having him submit to his, uh, to his, uh, leadership, I guess. We are now in Crate. Leia is looking out the door of this base that's kind of built into the side of the mountain. And, uh, she sees there looks like there's some ships coming towards them. So she orders the doors closed. And as the door is closing, there appears to be a ship being chased by TIE fighters. And as the door gets 
even closer and closer to closing all the way, the ship is able to squeak into the base and land more or less. And the TIE fighters, they don't get in. They, they're not, you know, they're not able to make it inside. At first, they're shooting at the ship, and then they realize it's Finn and Rose and BB-8, so they kind of welcome them back into the fold. The Resistance, or Rebels now, start to kind of set up the base inside, you know, getting some, you know, mobile equipment ready, turning on their shields and all that kind of stuff. Leia orders a call-out, you know, a distress call be sent out to any Rebel cells anywhere else you know, to come to their aid because they're about to be attacked. You know, with the shields, they're able to at least avoid any orbital bombardments, but they know that there's going to be a ground assault coming any minute now. And then, uh, you know, really far, far down in the horizon, you see a whole bunch of ATAT looking ships approaching and then a middle, uh, different looking circular kind of thing that is basically like a battering ram ray gun type of thing that they're going to use to try to break down the gigantic door. They all realize that there's only one way in and out of there, so there is no back exit. They have to hold off in there as long as possible until they can hopefully get some help to arrive to help them. Finn even says they need to just buy time at this point. All the outside defenses start to get prepared, and this is very reminiscent of the Battle of Hoth as the rebels are getting ready to be overrun. <laughs> the location is very similar to Hoth, too, in terms of it's all white, but instead of snow, this is all made out of salt. So there's like a layer of like red powder everywhere that's coming from the crystals, underground crystals. Then on top of that, a layer of salt that makes everything look white, like it's freshly snowed. As a matter of fact, one soldier looks at it and gestures to the soldier next to him and says, salt. You know, he's trying to tell him what the stuff is. And the soldier that's next to him, is it's actually Gareth Edwards, the director of Rogue One, he, during his particular cameo in this film. The rebels at this point have some kind of ships they can use. There's some sort of skimming speeders. They're like a speeder that kind of skims the ground slightly. And the way that it stabilizes the, the movement of the speeder is by lowering this kind of vein to the ground. And by lowering this vein, it creates that dust line that we see in a lot of the footage or even the uh, trailer for the movie. It creates a cool effect, basically. It is, they, they do mention that these are very old speeders and to the point where when Poe is piloting one, getting ready for the fight, his foot goes to the bottom of the speeder and you can actually see his foot because it just punched a hole through the bottom. At first, the First Order troops deploy their TIE fighters to engage the speeders. And it is pretty devastating, you know, the amount of damage they can do with those TIE fighters. But at the last minute, the Falcon finally appears and starts blasting away at some of these TIE fighters. And then the TIE fighters all are ordered to start chasing the Falcon instead of the speeders. Uh, inside the cockpit, we see Chewie with a whole bunch of porgs, you know, uh, helping him fly along. <laughs> They do a quick little funny thing with a pork hitting the, the window, kind of like a Garfield doll, you know, against the window of the car, that sort of thing. The Horizon line has what appears to be about seven of these new, I think they call them guerrilla style, which are AT, uh, M6 or something like that. These new bigger kind of adats. There's about seven of them. And then there's maybe two or three of regular adats. And they're, you could tell they're way, way smaller than the big ones. 
as the TIE fighters proceed to chase the Falcon, the Falcon goes into a cave underground and starts flying through this cave, which is, uh, once again, the exact thing that we see during Star Tours, the new modified version of the ride. These red crystal caves inside where the crystals uh, crack and explode and that sort of thing. And a lot of the TIE fighters get devastated inside of this cave system until the Falcon finally comes back out again. As the battle starts, um, a whole bunch of these, I think they're called crystalline foxes, they go rushing into the base before the door is finally closed because I guess they're coming in for cover and they're just hanging out inside the base with the rest of the rebels. They're really, really cool looking. Uh, they look like foxes, but instead of hair, they have crystals, like white crystals. Really, really nice. The Adats begin to shoot down a lot of those speeders that the Rebels are using. Finn gets to a point where he's almost like one of the last ones left, and he shows that he wants to basically sacrifice himself to be able to destroy this gun. And, you know, the music swells, and, you know, things around him are blowing up, and, and you're so manipulated into thinking he's going to kill himself, basically. But at the last minute, Rose, on her speeder, kind of crashes into him to kind of deviate him from killing himself in order to take out the gun and they both crash now finn is okay he comes out of his ship and he approaches rose and she tells him something to the effect of that it's it's better to save the ones you love than to kill the ones you hate and she kisses him and all of a sudden you're like oh great now you have another romantic interest for finn it's like, are they really trying to do this now? Are they trying to create a triangle, a lover's triangle now to these guys? Very unusual. And, you know, I'm, I'm not really feeling it for this character. And it's like, okay. And she kind of passes out. And, and for a moment you think, well, maybe she's dead. No, I don't know. I can't tell. I mean, they have so many false events here that you just can't keep track of what's real and what's not real. Then we see the big gun starts to shoot at the door. And it is starting to break the door apart. The ray that's coming out of this gigantic gun is working. Inside the base, word is out that there's no response from the signal that Leia, you know, sent out. She's feeling like this is the end. And all of a sudden, at the last second, we see Luke walking into the base. He looks a little different. He looks a little cleaner. His hair is a lot shorter. His hair resembles a lot more like what we were seeing those flashbacks of what he looked like when he first had his confrontation with Kylo Ren, I guess, many years ago. He talks to Leia a little bit and gives her the dice from the Falcon that used to belong to Han Solo. And they have a short little sweet moment between the two. And Luke prepares to go outside and challenge or you know fight the first order and on his way out he kind of winks at the c-3po and that's that's kind of cute too kylo flips out when he sees luke coming out to to meet all of the walkers and he orders basically every single gun that's available to shoot at him and they all do everything is shooting at him every at at every everything inside is shooting at luke when the dust clears, Luke is still there, and he kind of wipes like a little... He makes like the gesture of wiping dust from your shoulder, kind of like uh, mocking Kylo, basically. And inside the ships, uh, Hux is telling Kylo that, you know, this is pointless or something like that. So 
Kylo just knocks Hux down again because he's like his punching, he's like a punching bag for Kylo Ren now. He just completely loses it. We see Finn bringing Rose inside the base while this is happening. Kylo comes out and he's going to go fight Luke. When Kylo ignites his lightsaber, it's a really cool looking procedure, if you will. It is the same type of a, it's almost like a kicking down and, and pointing down that ignites the, uh, his lightsaber. It's the type that we've seen during the Force Awakens uh, trailer, one of the initial trailers of when we see him igniting his lightsaber in the woods at night, that that scene actually never made it to the film, but they used it during the trailer. And it's this kind of like a, it's almost like a little push that he has to do with his hand to ignite it. It's not just a matter of pressing a button. It's a matter of extending and projecting his arm out to make the, the beam come out. It's a really cool stylistic kind of mood. Inside the base, Poe is explaining to people around them that Luke is basically stalling for time, you know, while they're waiting for some kind of reinforcements to come out. Because there's just no other way out. And then all of a sudden, Poe sees that the crystal foxes are heading in a different direction inside the base. So he starts following them to figure out, you know, where they're going. Outside, in a different part of the mountain area they're in, the falcon is kind of circling around trying to figure out where they're at. And they do see out in the distance a whole bunch of these crystalline foxes coming out of the side of a mountain. Through an area that has kind of like rubble or something. Poe, as he's chasing these foxes inside, they get to an area where, yeah, there is, there seems to be an area where the foxes are exiting the cave structure, but it is too small for them to fit through, for, you know, people to fit through. In the meantime, Ray lands the falcon on the opposite end of that area. So Luke and Kylo start doing their fight, and it's a stylized kind of a fight, you know, a Jedi type of fight, a samurai kind of fight, if you will. And after a while, you know, Kylo can kind of tell that something's just not right with this because he is dodging just about everything. He cannot score any hits, you know, on Luke. And Luke even tells Kylo that, you know, the rebellion is being reborn right now based on what is happening. And he tells them that he is not the last Jedi. Rey, in the meantime, starts to levitate all of these rocks that are blocking the exit and lifting them up in the air, a lot of rocks, lifting them up in the air as the whatever is left of the resistance and the rebels, they all start streaming out of the cave. And finally, Finn comes out and he hugs Ray for a long time, finally reuniting those two. At one point, when I think we realize that Ray has gotten everybody out of the back, we go back to Luke, and Luke kind of lets Kylo Ren cut right through him, right through the middle, but nothing happens. He walks right through it, then turns around, and then Kylo Ren kind of stabs him again, directly in the chest. Nothing happens. There's like no effect on Luke. And at this point, we cut back to Luke back in his island, the old disheveled Luke, meditating, concentrating, sitting on that rock that he was sitting on before, but he's levitating a few feet up from the rock. And we understand at this point that he is somehow projecting an image of himself, a younger image of himself, through the galaxy, reaching this planet, fighting Kylo Ren. It's all a distraction, basically, just to buy them time as before. And he even tells Kylo, see you around, kid. 
which is a very reminiscent line that uh, Han used to say. And Luke tells Kylo that, you know, once he's dead, once he joins the Force, more or less, he will be with Kylo forever. And and so will Han. So it's almost like <laughs> it's implying that even if he kills him, I mean, it looks very much like Luke is kind of getting ready to die, that he will be a problem with Kylo Ren for the rest of his life, too. As Luke disappears from the battle, he just fades away, Leia starts to feel something wrong. And we cut to Luke in his meditative state. He's now opening his eyes and he can see the sunset starting to form, very reminiscent of the first time we see Luke and Tatooine uh, with the twin sun sunset. Well, this is a a different planet, a different time in his life. And it's, uh, if you can call that the beginning of his adventure, this is the end of his life. And he fades to nothing, similar to how Yoda passed. Only his robes are left and the robes just kind of fall down and get blown away by the wind. And that is the end of Luke Skywalker. At this point, Kylo enters the base with his troops ready to massacre everybody, but nobody's there. He finds Han Solo's dice, but as he picks them up, they also disappear. So it's as if they were also, those were also an illusion too. As the Falcon is done loading everybody there and is getting ready to leave and Ray is closing the door, she connects with Kylo Ren again and they look at each other and she doesn't attempt to kind of talk him into joining her again. And it's more or less, it seems to be understood that these two are not <laughs> going to try to entice each other to come to their sides anymore. They picked sides and that's where they're at. Inside the Falcon, all the survivors are hugging and they're happy. And, and Poe finally meets Ray. He's like, hi, I'm Poe. You must be Ray. You know, because those two, I guess, technically haven't met. This is the first time they meet. As they're getting ready to depart, Finn picks up a blanket to put on top of uh, Rose because she's still kind of passed out. She's getting medical attention. And as he lifts the uh, blanket, we notice that underneath the blanket in a box or in a drawer, the books, the Jedi books are all there. So that is an implication that before leaving, Rey took all of the books, or at least a lot of them, with her. They did not all burn <laughs> in the fire uh, that Yoda and Luke were trying to do. Leia also tells Rey that what they're going to do next is rebuild the rebellion, basically. They have to start from scratch again. And Rey shows Leia the two halves of Luke's lightsaber that she brought with her, you know, from her battle with Kylo Ren and Snoke. We then cut to Canto Bite again, out of all places. And we see uh, some of the kids that we had seen earlier, the kids that worked at those stables and that they're getting yelled at by some kind of creature that's like their master, let's say. But the kids in this particular scene, they're all playing with these little dolls that they act like homemade dolls. And one of them in, in a different language is saying something to the effect that this is Luke Skywalker, you know, Jedi Knight and blah, blah, blah. So they're kind of retelling the, the mythical story of the Jedi Knights and Luke Skywalker being the greatest of them all or something like that. And then somebody comes in and starts yelling at them to like get back to work or whatever in a, in a different language. And one kid goes outside and very quickly, a lot of people miss this, he gestures towards a broom that's on the floor and the broom comes flying to his hand. And he takes the broom and he's kind of holding it like a, 
like a sword, and on his hand you could see he's wearing the ring with the rebel insignia that we saw earlier that Rose had shown. And he, you know, he's looking up at the stars, and uh, you see him raise the, the the broom in the air like a sword once again. Uh, so we're getting this feeling of this could be the beginning of the new rebellion or the new Jedi Order in some shape or form, you know, for the future. And that's the end of the film. Well, to me, this film was somewhat of a disappointment in terms of how I compare it to the previous two films, as compared to Rogue One and as compared to The Force Awakens. Those are much better films than this one. As a continuation to especially The Force Awakens, forget Rogue One completely. Let's talk about uh, The Force Awakens, and I mentioned this a few times before. This is supposed to be a sequel to The Force Awakens. And what seems to be happening now is that, for whatever reason, they seem to be giving the directors complete free reign to change things in between films. I did get the feeling, from what I'm hearing and what I'm reading, that there's this refreshing new anti-JJ sentiment of how happy a lot of people are that they are changing some of the elements that J.J. put into effect as part of this new trilogy. I have absolutely nothing against changing gears, doing something different. I just have a problem with doing something different while you're in the middle of something. You know, this is the type of thing where if you want to create new rules, I don't mind you creating new rules, but create them slightly outside of this particular story because this particular story already has the ground rules set up in the first film. There are no enormous, crazy contradictions, you know, within Star Wars. Now, granted, yes, Luke-Leia uh, relationship might not have turned into a sister-brother thing until further down the line. But there are certain canonical, you know, things that you set up that over here, they kind of go out the window. There are certain MacGuffins, and I know that J.J. Abrams is famous for creating MacGuffins that don't necessarily get answered, but he likes to create the mystery of the MacGuffin. But there is no excuse for not giving it to you at this point, because, you know, I don't think you can blame J.J. Abrams for the fact that the second director now, Brian Johnson, decided not to go into these specific subjects and completely ignore some others. There are some interviews I've been hearing where he says that, yeah, J.J. on the next film can completely reverse everything he's done. And the question is, do we really want to have films, three films, that switch gears so abruptly in between each other? No, these things should have a certain consistency to them, a certain unity. You know, that's the whole canon thing. And that's the type of thing that I think Lucas uh, was better at, being able to stay consistent with an idea to the point where it could hurt him sometimes because if it was a bad idea, he would not abandon it. He would just continue with it. I do not see The Force Awakens as a movie that's, you know, full of bad ideas. Yes, there are some weak spots here, but compared to this film, it is a much, much better truer film, film that sticks to its core elements of Star Wars. I understand the comedy, I enjoyed the comedy, but it is somewhat inappropriate to have so much of it in this one. What's really interesting is if you think about it, one of the reasons why they fired the directors of the Han Solo movie was because they were apparently going a little too much in the comedy side. Now, my question is, if I feel this movie has too much comedy, 
how much more comedy could the Han Solo movie have had for even them to pull the plug on that and then, you know, reassign it to uh, Ron Howard? That's a pretty scary thought. I was suspecting at one point that it was the Thor Ragnarok effect that they, you know, Marvel realized, hey, we can make turn these movies a little funnier and people will love it. It worked for Thor. But Thor is not Star Wars. And Star Wars has a level of seriousness that you can't really turn it into a sitcom-y kind of funny slapsticky movie. There are times when Star Wars goes over the line and people feel it. You know, Jar Jar went over the line. Uh, even the Ewoks, to a certain extent, went over the line a little bit. You can't do certain things. But here they said, screw it. We're going to do it anyway. The plot elements that are left wide open, the big cliffhangery questions that you wanted answered, they just, as of now, they're not. Unless this is a gigantic fake-out that they will then give us those answers. They just want us to, for the next two years, be in left in suspense. I do not know. How would I rate this movie? Uh, I would kind of say this is the Phantom Menace of this trilogy. One of the things about the Phantom Menace that I'm remember was the fact that it had some awesome sequences but as a whole it had these holes these these moments of what you know there was the the great pod race scene the great darth maul duel uh you know there were these great moments in it and this is what i'm kind of finding in this movie the entire first act or most of the first act i really enjoyed the battle in the beginning up until the point where we realized that now we're going to be for the next hour and a half stuck in the slow motion chase that is really illogical, that it would not just get this thing over with and do something. There's so many things that are wasted. The trip to Canto Bight is a complete and utter waste of time, if you think about it from a writing perspective. The mission they went on was a complete failure. If they would have gotten the right person they might have been able to complete their mission. But from the second they stepped into that planet, they got caught by a parking ticket violation. It, it just, they accomplished nothing. They came back empty-handed. Uh, so it's like, what? <laughs> that whole sequence was a waste of time. The character of Rose, I thought it was pretty weak. I'm thinking the only reason they are bringing her in is to create, is to force a possible lover's triangle with Finn and Rey, unless they're going to take Rey now and throw her in a completely different direction. I don't know. If every director is going to reinvent the wheel, then, you know, a lot of potentially weird things could happen. The flying Leia, that was something that really, really bothered me. It just didn't fit, you know, with the story as far as I'm concerned. Musically, I cannot really remember much of it. I don't recall any specific thematic tracks from the soundtrack. The trailer had a great little musical number, but I don't really recall rehearing it again uh, during the, uh, the movie. I'm beginning to suspect that a lot of, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the positive feedback obviously it's coming from people that don't understand Star Wars. I've heard of people who've seen this movie but haven't seen the previous ones and they really like this one. It's like, but you don't understand what's going on here. A portion, not all of them, but I'm sure a portion of the people are also people that despise J.J. Abrams so much for some of his other work. 
Star Trek work possibly, or, or even uh, Force Awakens, that anybody who does something contradictory to him, they're automatically loving this film just because it kind of rubs it in J.J. Abrams' face. You know, I don't, I don't get that. <laughs> uh, I'm not in, I'm not in that camp. With that said, I'm not saying this is a horrible film. This is just a good film that has plot holes problems in them. Like I mentioned, there were so many things that could have been avoided. That, that whole trip to, to Cantabai was a waste of time. The treason, the, the, the Poe Holdo thing was, like I said before, like a bad episode of Three's Company. This all happened because somebody misunderstood somebody else. If she would have just told him his plan, then this would have been a, you know, this, you could have shortened this. The movie was pretty long too. I think they did say it was the longest one so far. I think they could have easily shaved quite a bit off this movie if they would have tightened the script a little bit. And from what I understand, they already cut out probably another half hour of this movie. So yeah, there is quite a bit of a bloating problem, I think, with some of this. But again, I'll say this forever, and that is uh, any Star Wars is better than no Star Wars. Pretty soon we're going to have the Han Solo movie, then we have Chapter 9, directed by J.J. Abrams, and then another standalone film. I don't know if it's the Obi-Wan story or what, or if they've decided which one it is. I'm not sure yet. I am going to see this one one more time. I, I feel like I need to give it another shot. Might have a different feeling on the second time around. Might be able to overlook certain things. Overall, it kind of felt like there were so many moments where this movie went in the direction of a second-tier canon situation, like the animated show, or even the EU material, you know, that kind of stuff, where characters do certain things under the banner of Star Wars that really don't feel very Star Wars either, a little too much. But I would say... If you're a Star Wars fan, there's no way around it. You're going to have to see this movie and make up your mind on your own. There is enough stuff here. There are some fantastic, fantastic scenes. My favorite, once again, is the whole Praetorian Guard throne room fight. That was just amazing. And let's see uh, where this takes us in a few months and in a few years. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. We did a full-blown Star Wars The Last Jedi review. This was my first impressions. We are going to have at least another view at this film. I'm going to watch it at least one more time just to see if it kind of sinks in a little better, if it makes a little more sense the second time around. And hopefully I'll be able to hear from some of our other participants and contributors to get their take on it. So far, this film is very polarizing from what I understand. Fans are going in two different directions, and I understand precisely why that is happening in many situations. So until next time, thanks for joining us, and we will see you here soon at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. Must have a thousand questions. Where's Ray? Why are you here? Something inside me is awake. I need help. We are the spark that light the fire. Burn the first order down. I was raised to fight. For the first time, I had something to fight for. Come on! I need someone to show me my place.
If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2017. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots radio network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>